0: For now, may I invite Prof Tan to give his opening remarks. Good evening, everyone. Having heard me speak four times previously, I figured you must all be quite tired of listening to me already. So I decided, well, on the advice of uh, my friends in IPS, um, to change the format somewhat and bring forward a real star um, to share with us um, his insights and his thoughts on the history of Singapore and the history of the region. And I'm delighted that tonight I will be joined by my guru and mentor, Professor Wang Gangwu, whom I'll introduce formally in a while um, to share in the dialogue tonight. So what will happen is that I'll make some brief opening remarks, about 10, 15 minutes, after which I'll invite uh, Prof Wang and Janadas to come on stage and then we'll have a a dialogue amongst three of us, after which there will be uh, questions uh, from the audience, and then we will have a dialogue with all of you. So, So let me begin with my remarks. In my previous lectures, I've attempted to link several aspects of Singapore's history to the region, through the concept of maritime engagements, hinterlands, as well as the constitution and functioning of social and commercial networks. Through these, I've raised questions of locations, identities, national versus communal, histories as well as ideas of statehood and nationhood. All this was to suggest that Singapore's history is intimately tied to the region and an understanding of the history of Southeast Asia, especially of the changes in the past century, can do much to illuminate the history of Singapore. For tonight's session, I would like to focus on the nature of nation states, identities, and histories in Southeast Asia, including Singapore. I'm deeply honored to have with me Professor Wang Gangwu, one of the most distinguished scholars of Asian history, to discuss these key historical themes. I'll introduce him in a while. To set the stage and to provide the framework for the discussion, I will briefly sketch a couple of key developments in the region that were instrumental in determining the shape of Southeast Asia as we know it today. These are the processes of decolonization and the consequent rise of nationalism and new states in the wake of the European empires. Let me start with decolonization. Decolonization is a critical facet of Southeast Asian history. Contemporary Southeast Asia emerged from colonialism, essentially with the imposition of the Western concept of statehood and national frontiers. The very idea of Southeast Asia as a region emerged from British strategic considerations during the Second World War. It arose from the need to name a geographical entity on a map as a possible theater of war. The term was then used to denote Mountbatten's command in Colombo, which was called Southeast East Asian Command. The term got entrenched during the process of decolonization as the departing European powers came to think of the future of the colonies as an entire region. It later became a Cold War construct. Moving away from the regional level, the response of local populations and their respective leaders to departing colonial powers effected changes across different countries in the region. Nationalist organizations profited from the European loss of power to the Japanese during the war, and whether these nationalists cooperated with the Japanese, as Ong San and Sukarno did, or fought against all forms of colonialism as Ho Chi Minh did, they fought for eventual emancipation and independence. While the colonial powers all wanted to regain their empires after the, after the war, they knew that the post-war international climate and local conditions in their erstwhile colonies had changed. They were aware that they would not be returning to a power vacuum following the defeat of, following the, defeat of the Japanese. As the Japanese forces receded, the European and, and the European influence had not fully returned, the nationalists seized the moment and stepped into the gap. The process of decolonization varied throughout Southeast Asia. In Indonesia, Burma, and Vietnam, the momentum of the revolutionary movements, coupled with the political and tactical weaknesses of the European powers, brought about a relatively quick and bloody end to empire in the French and Dutch territories. The British were able to to delay the departure from the Southeast Asian colonies and to achieve the outcomes that they wanted, and that was a peaceful transfer of power to local leaders who were prepared to keep the new states within the Commonwealth. I've explained the British grand design in my previous lecture, and the plans for Malaya and Singapore in this whole concept (coughs) of delaying decolonization and creating in a post-war Uh, post-colonial Malaya and Singapore entities that were sympathetic to British interests. The United States, which was allied to the British during the Second World War, tended to see the process of transfer of power through the lens of the emerging Cold War. It was deeply suspicious of left-wing movements in the region, and while it had limited direct engagement in Southeast Asia, the US had a major influence in the process of decolonization. U.S. policies alternated between the encouragement of gradual emancipation and grander plans for development, regional stability, and state-building, well, preferably state-building in an image of America. And like the European powers, the U.S. affected the geopolitics of Southeast Asia, shaping identities that went beyond national boundaries. Now, the end of the, cold, uh, the, end of the war saw the rise of nationalism in different parts of Southeast Asia. Colonialism eventually spawned the impulses for self-determination. First, as resistance to colonial regimes, then as mass-based anti-colonial movements uniting often disparate local populations with their diverse concerns and grievances to a common cause under the banner of nationalism. However vague uh, the concept was and however ill-defined that concept was, Uh, to the people on the ground. Nationalism in Southeast Asia did not always emerge from some local organic effervescence. It was, for the most part, generated by antagonism towards an alien and oppressive world order to which the local population had been subjected. As the ideas of nations and states were Western modern concepts, they did not always sit well with local circumstances and polities in Southeast Asia. Still. Nationalism as a political idea had to be domesticated because local elites who had benefited from Western education provided to them uh, as a means to co opt them into the colonial system would use this uh, to perpetuate the ideals of community, self-determination, and destiny for their own political purposes. Thus, as modern Southeast Asia emerged from the demise of the European empires, Western ideas of statehood, national identity, democracy, territorial sovereignty, and political boundaries were embraced as the natural order of things in the region that did not have any of this as historical precedents. So new concepts imposed on a traditional order that was, not, they were not, that was not used to having this in the first place. With the emergence of states as the organizing principle of the new international order, political frontiers which were uncommon if not unknown in the region, were imposed on the political map of post-colonial Southeast Asia. This contrasted significantly from the traditional system where the ambit of the state and structure of authority were determined by the power and influence wielded by the ruler and not by the delineation of boundaries on the map. It has been pointed out that what counted in Southeast Asia traditionally was allegiance, whom, rather than what did the state comprise. The boundaries of the states were rather inexact. Instead, where the people went, there went the state. And it was largely in the 19th and 20th centuries that frontiers and political boundaries took their current shape. In mainland Southeast Asia, agrarian systems had given a particular shape to states that had been in existence for some centuries. The Burman, Thai, Vietnamese Khmer states were recognizable entities even before the Europeans determined their frontiers. Their cultural characteristics that defined large proportions of the population, even though minority groups existed in their midst, um, persisted amidst the drawing of national boundaries. Maritime Southeast Asia did not have the historical continuities of the agrarian-based polities of the mainland and their frontiers were more decisively shaped by the the European powers. In these cases, political independence was not achieved through expressions of national identity that were predicated on cultural homogeneity, but by anti-colonial struggles and changes to the international order. As a consequence, in maritime Southeast Asia, the state preceded the nation. Singapore and Indonesia are classic examples of this phenomenon. I've already spoken at length about Singapore in my previous lecture, and I want to quote something from Ben Anderson, a political scientist, Benedict Anderson, who studied uh, Indonesia closely. He pointed out, the stretch of Indonesia does not remotely correspond to any pre-colonial domain. The stretch of Indonesia does not remotely correspond to any pre-colonial domain. The boundaries have been those left behind by the last Dutch conquest. And as a result of these new frontiers, newly formed Southeast Asian nation states like Myanmar, Indonesia, Malay, and Singapore face challenges of defining national identity amidst ethnic diversity. Many contemporary issues in Southeast Asia stem from these developments. Muslim separatism in the Philippines, Singapore-Malaysia relations, Burman majoritarianism, and even where these tensions exist within the state and where there are competing ideologies and identities, ethnic, religious, and national, there is also continued debate over shared culture and histories that transcend national boundaries, whether there was such a thing as a kind of a regional identity, and the evolution of a concept like Nusantara, for instance, um, and the overlapping heritage of Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia are perhaps expressions of possible regional identities that go beyond the boundaries that were imposed by the departing colonial powers. Now as a historian, I often delight in saying that the present cannot be understood without a knowledge of the past. So uh, I'm especially delighted to have this opportunity um, to share the stage uh, with, as I said, my history guru and mentor, Professor Wonggang Gang who will discuss these themes and try to make sense of how history has shaped contemporary Southeast Asia. Professor Wang, as you all know, is a distinguished historian and world-renowned authority in Chinese and global history, and he uh, has, through his own lived experiences, uh, he's lived in um, Indonesia, Malaya, Singapore, China, Australia, his lived experiences has influenced and stimulated his views and deep understanding of the major changes that transformed Southeast Asia in the past 50-60 years. Professor Wang is well positioned to offer insights on decolonization and the rise of nation-states in Southeast Asia among other themes and I'm delighted to welcome him on stage. So Professor Wang please and Janadas.
1: In Singapore, we use the word scholar uh, very lightly. It's a title we tend to confer um, on a few kids at the age of 18 uh, (laughs) on the basis of their A-level results. Um, On stage here, you have two people who really earn the title of scholar, especially Professor Wang Gangwu. Usually the title is conferred after you've written about half a dozen books, um, but Professor Wong has written about five dozen books. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> he, has, he has earned the title many times over. Um, it is a very broad um, theme uh, that we have today and, um, and Taiyong has uh, given a series of very magisterial lectures uh, covering not only the history of Singapore, but the region and Singapore's place in the region and the world. So let me um, begin by um, recapitulating or going back to an earlier lecture you had on Singapore and how um, you picked up the theme just now by observing that Singapore, like Malaya, uh, became a state. Uh, The existence of the state was prior to their existence, probable existence as nations. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to go back to an earlier era um, when we became independent um, as a sovereign island, um, nobody could have guessed. I mean, the generation that, that was formed, the first generation of leadership in Singapore, never could, never mind nation, never, didn't believe the state of Singapore could exist without being part of a larger state that encompassed Malaya in the first instance and then Malaysia. Um, We couldn't have guessed it then, uh, but it wasn't obvious when we became independent in 1965 that the equation that led us into merger um, no longer obtained. Uh, The initial calculation was that Singapore could not survive apart from the mainland. We couldn't have guessed it, but actually we were surprised by the turn history took after 1965, Um, and um, 1965, the Vietnam War was still raging. Uh, China had just begun to be engulfed by the Cultural Revolution. Um, The Cold War was still raging. But in retrospect, we actually, over the past 50 years or more, have lived through a very long peace Trade barriers fell. From GATT, we got WTO. Um, And as a result, partly by our own effort, but also because of a benign international situation, we prospered. So we became a state because, not only because of our own efforts, but because the international situation was benign. And now, Perhaps you may be seeing a reversal of that. Um, globalization is no longer um, inevitable, no longer seems inevitable um, by some calculations. Um, are we in the interim become a nation to withstand the challenges that a globalization and retreat may pose? Both to the idea of nation states, as well as the idea of a nation. You would like to take the question first and then we can turn.
0: Is it on? Yeah. Well, Chanadas, uh, I, I, I had actually taken, uh, some, taken on some of the comments that you had made um, in my earlier lectures about Singapore's evolution um, from a kind of an entrepot-port city to um, a city-state and then to a nation-state. And in all this time, it has, evo- it has evolved in response to change circumstances um, in the region and internationally. So the question that you posed was that what is the inevitable end, I guess, of Singapore's evolution um, as it goes on, given that um, the world has changed and turned around again? Um, and whether it will survive as a city state or it can survive as a nation state. And here is where I think it's gonna be very interesting to hear Prof Wang's views because in earlier discussions with him, we've talked about how nation states was not a very sort of a entrenched, established kind of a concept and that it's probably 100 years old and that whether the world will see nation states surviving is an open question. But where Singapore is concerned, I think as a city-state, it will continue to flourish, but whether it will continue to function at the same time as a nation-state remains an interesting question. Um, I think Lee Kuan Yew himself asked that question at the end of his uh, two-volume memoir, where he asked what's going to happen to Singapore 200 years from now, and whether Singapore will survive in its current state. And he said that as an island, Singapore will be there, but whether as a nation state, um, it will be there, when no, nobody knows. So I think that much will depend on uh, the circumstances, but having gone 50 years to build an identity, um, to build a, a kind of a sovereign status, I think it's not going to go away very easily. Uh, there will be struggles, there will be challenges. But if it can embrace both uh, the ideas of um, rootedness and national belonging, and yet, continue to function as an open city state, and it has shown that it has the capacity to do so, then Singapore might do well in a world uh, where larger nations are closing up, and it could offer the alternative of a a kind of a nodal um, entities that can function in a more connected world. So I'm optimistic, but um, mainly because Singapore has shown its capacity to evolve and taken on different forms over a long period of history. And that is why I've always made the point that Singapore's history is not only 50 years. It's got a much longer history. And if you see that in a context, then you're going to see that it's quite adaptable.
2: Thank you very much. In fact, uh, I I must begin by saying that uh, I've listened to for f- four lectures, one of them I wasn't here but I heard it on, uh, on, your, on the website. So I think he's probably exhausted the subject in some ways and I, I don't think I can add very much. So I have a feeling that he brought me up here basically to justify his title of his talk today But before and beyond. The before part of course is obvious because I'm older than him and I've, I've just seen a lot more than he did. And I must say that all the words that he uses, the, uh, and used, things words like identities, nations, states, and so on, they're all very, very difficult words to pin down, frankly. I, uh, they're very elusive and they're very deceptive, and they've been used in so many different ways to mean different things. And I've seen this done by different groups of people. So, what I can say, certainly on the before part, I mean, I grew up with no sense of nation. So I'm, I'm old enough to not even to believe there was such a thing as nation. In the days when, uh, when I became conscious about na- nations coming to this part of the world, as far as we were concerned, our identities were linked up with our ethnicity. The language you spoke, the kind of origins where your parents came from, and these were much more the important markers of who you were than the idea of nations. And in fact, as, uh, as late, uh, when you, it depend how you define early and late, but as late as the 1950s, there were lots of people in Singapore and in Malaysia who really didn't think of themselves as any kind of nation of this part of the world, but still identified with their place of origins, whether China, India, Indone- different parts of Indonesia, Thailand, wh- wherever they, their parents had come from. So it's, it is very really recent. recent. But of the three words there, all very difficult. Actually, there's a fourth one, which uh, Taeyong hinted at earlier on, which I think is probably even more important because it's the, it's the background to the, what, what, what has happened since. And that's the word empires. I mean, I know you've dealt with it earlier on, but I think this word actually is much more important than we realize because actually empires were much more normal and, and been around for a long, long time. I mean. I'm not just thinking of the old ancient Chinese Empire, the Roman Empire, Persian Empire. You can think of a whole list of old empires, been around for a long, long time. And when we were thinking of independence, anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, we thought the age of empires had come to an end and replacing it would be the nation state. I mean, that, that was the first my first awareness of the possibilities of, of a nation state, that this was something to replace all those terrible things called empires which which we had suffered under and so on. And indeed we believed very much that the empires were the cause of our misery and therefore we had to get rid of those imperialists and have our own countries and be independent and so on. All these things were more or less believed by everybody that the time had come. And I really, for a long time, I actually believed that the age of empires had come to an end. But then the historian in me, somewhere along the line, I have been reading a lot of history, made me hesitate for the simple reason that a lot of things seem to change, but don't really change all that much. And something as ancient as empires that have been around for 4,000, 5,000 years, all over the Eurasian landmass and in this part of the world, has it really gone away? Can something like nation states replace empires altogether? So this is the before part. The beyond part is when he start saying, is this, is this at all possible? Is it likely? And I remember being very op- optimistic. I actually got up one day and stuck my neck out and said, age of empires, over. And uh, there were people in the audience who said, hang on, are you sure? And uh, that question remained in my mind for a while. I was still pretty sure, but I'm not so sure now, because empires is another vague word, very difficult word. In fact, I always thought I understood what an empire was because I I thought I lived through several. I was born in the Dutch empire, and I grew, grew up in the British empire, and then the Japanese came, I had a Japanese empire, and then the british came back and the british empire and then a new world order in the cold war when one had the feeling at least for a while that the world was divided into two empires the kind of the communist empire and the capitalist empire and that's what the cold war was about the balance of power between two great conglomerations that behaved like empires even though they were not normally so nominally so and But still I put it aside, no, no, that's just, the Cold War is just a gathering of, grouping of different nation states against one another. But if you think harder about it, I'm not sure sure that the the Cold War wasn't between two super, super empires. In a very different shape and form, grouping together in a very different way, not like the old days when your colonies actually taking territories, sending armies and navies around and taking other people's territories, not that way at all much more soft power. Soft power is a different way of expressing power. I mean, I I sometimes get the uh, false uh, optimism that soft power is not power, it's really nice and soft and sweet and all lovable and pleasurable and so on. But actually, the word power is still there. And we say power, we say hard power is linked with military power mainly, Uh, but there's a variety of uh, hard powers political power, influence, economic power. But soft power is another form of power. And it's it, in the form of information, in the form of control of the media, in the form of control of cyberspace, whatever it is, it can take many, many different forms. But its un- underlying it is what is the extent of its control and how it controls it, how much it actually molds and shapes the opinion of others do reflect something that I would have called an empire in the past, except the empires in the past were very crude. You had soldiers marching up and down, ships sailing up and down, shooting at everybody and so on. That, that's the whole idea of empire, and we sort of got used to it. But I'm less certain now, I'm no less confident now, that the age of empire is over. It's just that it's taken very different forms. In fact, the last few years, I've got even more skeptical about my own prediction that the age of empire is over by reading all about the the battles over companies, private companies, state companies, with AIs and artificial intelligence, all the robotics and all the fantastic cyber and uh, communication systems that are being built up today, and the fact that you can hack, get get no privacy, all of us are exposed in one way or the other. Even Singapore, we got, bewildered by the way the thought that, so all of us have been exposed to somebody who's got, somebody who's got all my information. You know? Now, I mean, not that I have that much information, interesting information for people to see, but it, it, what it boils down to is that, are we sure this is not something else that is operating in a very different kind of soft imperial penetration into our consciousness and becoming part of us, even picking up things about us of which we, 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 do not, we do not know how it comes about, we don't know how it happens, but it happens. I don't want to exaggerate this, and I don't want to alarm anybody, but I just want to just show that words like nations, empire, states, they don't actually have a fixed meaning. They have a particular meaning in a particular point of time. This is where, as a, as a historian, I'm, I'm certainly inclined to feel that way. These are words which are meaning certain things in a certain point of time, but if you take it over different times, it it means different things. I mean, even nation states meant different things to the Europeans in the days of the Treaty of Westphalia, when it first started, they were really not nations, but they were sovereign states. So it started as sovereign states. Out of those sovereign states, some became nations, some did not. And some were actually empires down to to the present. Not only in Asia, in Europe itself. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, a large chunks of Europe was were, were under imperial control until the 20th century. So when you look at it, it, empires are pretty long-lived things and just down to just a few decades ago, we had empires. So why are we so cheerful about the end of empires? Or at least I blame myself for being so innocent. So I'm now putting to, back to you to say that the word empires probably is just as important as the three words that you have used.
0: So um, maybe I should have added empire now. No, but the point, Prof, is um, in in this current international order, the state is the main player. And even in the era of empires, you had a state, whether it was the monarchy or the church, but it functioned as a state where it controlled the resources, it controlled people, it had influence over territory. But what you had alluded to earlier was a fundamental change where the state need not be the key player anymore because it's about control of information, right? And it could be the corporates, it could be the people who control the Facebooks of the world and all that sort of thing. And that would fundamentally alter the way in which the world could function in the future. So even if we use the word empire to mean um, a, a kind of an order that had a mix of different sort of players, um with one overarching authority um, then if we take if we took away the state as a player would that still be possible or you're going to see a world that is just a series of interconnected nodes of information control or um, where the critical points of the economies are being controlled um, by corporates and not by states so i think i don't i, I won't argue with the fact that you know the the concept of nation states may not last Uh, and the concept of a kind of a looser uh, grouping of uh, powers, whether they are hierarchically or laterally organised, may replace the current world order, but whether the state will continue to be a player is something which I'm not sure about, given the kinds of changes we are seeing. Um, Some
1: months ago, Apple Corp became the first company in history to have reached a market cap of one trillion. That's larger than the GDP of most countries. But to come back to your question, just as the death of empires might be much exaggerated, uh, perhaps the nation state is somewhat more persistent um, than, than advertised. Um, even in history, the, you referred to the Westphalian Treaty Um, It resulted um, in, in, at least in Western historiography, that's supposed to be the beginning of the nation state. But if you go back further in history, some notion of the nation state must have existed as early as, say, the 12th century in England, because you had maps that clearly demarcated England as a separate territory. And then, of course, as you say, it is very complicated. Even with the Westphalian Treaty, you had principalities, German states, for example, that acquire the status of sovereign only to be swallowed up later in a larger imagined um, nation state, which is Germany, which is really actually an empire, um, even today. So <laughs> uh, it's a collection of little German states. Um, but nevertheless, um, you see, you know, some year, 1997, I remember the term Washington Consensus was bandied about. And that was supposed to be the global consensus. Now, the Western Washington consensus is gone, and you have a regime in power that says America first. In Europe, just a few decades ago, you had the European Union, and it's supposed to have ended national boundaries in Europe, and suddenly you have Brexit um, and Britain going its own way. So the nation state has or is a persistent reality, uh, even within Southeast Asia. Um, you know we haven't seen the emergence of an ASEAN community that saw wailing to be born. Um, If anything, it has taken the back seat.
2: Let me say straight away that Dayong is perfectly right. The state has been persistent all the way in in all its various forms, kingdoms, monarchies, city-states, nation-states, imperial states, you can say. And uh, so the state has always been there. In other words, some form of organized structure of bureaucratic control, and the, the capacity to utilize all the technologies and tools available to control people, areas, whatever, and, and their interests. Now, that I, I I totally agree. The state is there, but how to define that state? The state itself takes different shapes, and I'm and I'm not in a way suggesting that you can do away with the state, because in the end, I think no matter what kind of uh, uh, structure emerges at the end. It requires people to lead, pro- provide order, law and order, to enable people to live in peace at all. Otherwise, there's a constant, also barbarism. In place of barbarism, you need organized structures. And that structure you can call a state. It, it is many, many forms, because after all, when we started with tribal groups, you had a state. You had a leader, and he has his followers, a few soldiers, and can take over quite a large territory, be very mobile and take a lot of territory. So it, it can take many different forms. But the state, in that abstract sense, I think there's no question we can, we probably cannot do without the state. But whether the future state would be uh, recognizable to us today. I, that I'm sort of leave as a question mark. I don't really know. But having read all these, uh, first of all, starting out with science fiction when I was a kid. But even then, now, different kinds of science fiction actually taking, taking place around us. I mean, I sometimes I'm still read, read about what people are doing today. It still looks like science fiction to me, but I'm told it's pretty real. And, and, and it's gonna happen, you know. It's gonna control us in one way or the other. Now, I'm not going to exaggerate that too much, but I want to say that the state may well also evolve to take into account these other technologies available so that a few people can enable law and order to be ensured, safety, pre- pre- uh, security of their interests, and also control lots and lots of people in territory. But we may not be able to recognize it as the state that we used to recognize.
0: Maybe I'll just quickly add that the East India Company became a
2: state and an empire. <laughs> Nobody expected that. Exactly. When the East India Company was founded, I mean, you know, there were a bunch of merchants in London probably sitting up, sat in a pub, and thought about yeah. what a good idea. <laughs> the
3: East
1: India Company that supposedly founded Singapore. Supposedly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he found it. Huh? I think we can open the floor to uh, open questions to the floor. Um, You've got two very eminent people on stage, so please don't miss this chance. Uh, uh, Who is? Did you have your hand up over there? No.
4: Hi, good evening. Uh, My name is Manol Sharma. Uh, Thank you for that riveting conversation as well as those excellent series of lectures in the past. Uh, Prof Wang, you have really opened up my mind to the idea of empire. I think that leaves a lot to be explored. I've got two questions, uh, partly related to today's conversation and uh, partly related to some of the previous uh, lectures that you have given. My first question is this, when the East India Company or Raffles founded Singapore in 1819, How important was the hinterland in the 50 years thereafter, leading to 1869? My second question um, is, if we take a look at Singapore today, uh, from the point of view of the panel, the identity of Singapore today, how much of it would be a Rafflesian identity? And how much of it would be a Lee Kuan Yew identity?
2: That's, that's for you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> as long as I'm not answering.
0: The <laughs> so the, I, I think I'll answer the first question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when Raffles, well, I, you know, I, I've stopped using the word founded um, to describe the activity that led to the establishment of Singapore as a trading post in 1819. Raffles landed, he established a trading post uh, he bought over the island from uh, from the Malay Sultan. About the whole island. Well, yeah, but then subsequently Crawford uh, sealed, sealed the deal. Um, at that time, basically, there was no hinterland because Malay, Malaya had not yet been opened uh, by the British. As I had said earlier in my earlier lectures, the hinterland was actually sea-based because it was about the maritime connections and he essentially wanted to establish a foothold in the Straits of Malacca to protect East India Company trade against the Dutch. And because India was already opening up and he wanted to trade with China, so that was a kind of uh, a passage that it was, was important to control. So the, the hinterland, I think the idea of a, a, a geographical hinterland up north did not feature in his calculations, but more the control of a strategic point uh, for trade to happen and to fight back and push back the Dutch. Uh, your second question is about the identity. Hmm. I think you know the, the idea was that there was a group of uh, people, led by Lee Kuan Yew, and, but he was not the only leader, that basically established a, a new, had to establish a new state when Singapore had to exit Malaysia unexpectedly. So the imprint, the imprint of that leadership um, cannot be dismissed. I mean, how they envision a Singapore, disciplined, um, hardworking, resilient, able to make it on its own, yet remaining open to exploit the opportunities that were opening up around us, despite the fact that other opportunities were closed, all bore the imprint of the man, his ideas, his vision, and that of his team. So I won't sort of crassly put it that this was his vision, but the point was that he and his group of leaders were people trying to establish a new state, and they had ideas. Of course, they were paternalistic, because they said that you know leadership, or they believed that leadership was very critical. And I think they led the way. So that was how I think the identity was formed. And at that point in time, there was no nation to speak of, as I had alluded to earlier. So there was nothing organic that was coming up and influencing the way uh, Singapore would would take shape. but. I think it was leadership was imposed from the top, and therefore the imprint of Lee Kuan Yew and his, and his uh, fellow leaders um, were very prominent.
2: I, I'd like to use this opportunity to bring up a word that I have been talking with for some time. It, it stemmed from originally from the idea that uh, Singapore, when it became independent, was a unique state. Um, the word was used by many people, the unique circumstances certainly, but the unique state was the fact that in the middle of all this new nation building exercise, Singapore didn't do any nation building at at the time because it was thinking of becoming part of Malaya. It became unique in the sense that the totally unprepared state was trying to build a nation Certainly, that caught everybody's imagination. This uniqueness, of course, stems from the fact that it was separated from Malaya, from what had been Singapore's hope to belong to, to be separated from many decades of uh, hoping to be part of one day. Going back to Raffles, in a way, that the same word came to my mind, this separating part, because It separated a little island from the Johor empire, a Malay empire which had been there for a long time, and uh, by being separate, and in the middle of somebody else's empire, because the Dutch empire was actually extended to the Malay Peninsula at that point too. So in the middle of all that, they had to find ways and means of separating first from the Malay empire and separating from the Dutch empire, making very clear borders between what was British and, and Dutch interest, So this, the first steps were to separate, to distinguish, to achieve that kind of difference, which ultimately ended by Singapore being unique. The uniqueness then comes from what? From the fact that it, it really was the only immigrant state in the whole of Asia that I know of. Mm. And when it became independent in 1965, there were no other state in, in this part of the world which was purely full of, Im, Im, 99% probably were immigrants from somewhere else. You had them, of course, you could say there were places like that in Latin America, in, uh, in North America, Australasia, uh, migrant states. But uh, they were very large entities and they were really colonies, and they're not really not, uh, not migrant states like Singapore. Singapore is a migrant city, a port city, with no plans to become a state, none of, nothing like the colonies that were set up, whether they were colonies of, uh, of, of the British, the French, or others. That unique quality of people coming from different parts of the world basically meant that all the people who then became citizens of this independent state that suddenly became a, 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 so, supposedly a nation state really had to separate from their own homes. It's not, so it's not only a question of Singapore being separated from Malaya. All the peoples who became stakeholders in on this island state also had to separate themselves mentally, if not psychologically and spiritually, from whatever their connections were. They didn't succeed very well, it took them a long time and there are still people who are definitely still connected with their, with their traditional homes and their places of origin, but the process of getting more and more of them in each generation to separate from their homes, original homes, remains a work in progress. I mean, it's still happening. It's still part of the national, as it were, program to make them all separate themselves from, from their original homes. Now, this is a, a tantalizing thing because to do that in the middle of other countries who are basically native countries, they're nativist, they believe that the natives have priority over everybody, and that that should be the basis of those nation states. Singapore doesn't have that. I mean, this is another intriguing part about Singapore. It's a, it's, a, it's a subject, very sensitive one. But the fact was, when it started, it had a majority of Chinese, people of Chinese origins, something like 75%. But the leaders succeeded in persuading the 75% not to insist that they were Chinese or that this should be a Chinese state or to even try in any way to try and make it into a Chinese state, but to talk them out of it, and they had, it, was a, it was not an easy job, and I can, I can still visualize some of the early leaders going around trying to persuade the majority of their electorates not to think of themselves as belonging to a Chinese state, to belong to this unique thing called Singapore. No, it was not, an, not at all an easy job, but that's a unique experience. Mm-hmm. I know of no other part of Asia that this this thing uh, happened. So this, to me, explains quite a lot of the factors there.
0: Prof, can I I ask you to extend on this point because what's fascinating is the other example, Penang. Of course it did not end up like Singapore being a state on its own, but did it have aspirations? Of course it became part of the Malaysian state, but did did it have aspirations? Because there were lots of similarities and this is a state that you know well
2: but they had no choice. I think I remember <laughs> pe- people in Penang asking not to be independent so, so that they could stay out of the Malay, out of Malaya, but they didn't succeed. The British had just parted from them. It,
1: it's difficult to replay history again, but it might have gone differently if at that point in 1965, China was open. We had, the Chinese in Singapore could not go back to China. It was closed up. Um, and there was no Chinese immigration to this Nanyang. It stopped with um, um, the People's Republic, um, China in 1949. But even in 1965, I mean, in our narrative, we became independent in 1965, and suddenly we feared lux. We created the idea of a new nation. But I can't remember my, if I'm not sure if I got my dates correct, I have to check my notes, But Around November, as late as November 1965, Rajaratnam is on record saying there is no such thing as Singapore identity. It's impossible. November. And months later, he was asked to draft the Singapore Pledge. <laughs> so um, it was an act of will that created. Um, imagination. The state, yeah, and, and imagination, and to go back to imagination, because I, I think somewhere you are quoted as saying that you consider yourself Malayan, um, and so did almost everybody else in Singapore at that time. The word Singaporean doesn't exist. Um, when the PAP was inaugurated, it was Malayan nationalism, not Singaporean nationalism, uh, that was in the manifesto. And yet, curiously enough, though it was a very strongly imagined affiliation, historically, Singapore has never been ruled as part of Malaya. It was, the, Singapore was ruled together with, for much of its um, existence, a British colony, together with Malacca and Penang as a straight settlement. After the war, it became a separate crown colony, that's because the British decided the Malays would never accept a Malayan union that included Singapore. So you had the Malay federated states, uh, including Penang and, and, and Malacca, that's how Penang got separated from us, uh, and Singapore is a crown colony. And yet, the fact that we, though we never were part of Malaya as an administrative entity, we nevertheless, the strongest identity that among the more educated, uh, more conscious segment of the population in Singapore, before 1965, was Malayan.
2: I have have to say, just to add a little footnote, I have to say that uh, I, I was utterly astonished to find that Singapore was an independent nation, and utterly astonished at the same time, about the same time, that Malaya had disappeared. There's no Malaya now, it's Malaysia. Now, if, we, if you use the word Malaya, it's actually a, a, just a f- fantasy. I think, I think most people don't know what Malaya means. I, I discovered it with other people. When you talk about, Malaya, I, I said, University of Malaya this is where I graduated. It still exists. It, it still exists, <laughs> but, but you know, the thing is that the government deliberately kept it there to make sure that it is a slightly different one. It is not the national university. Ke bangsan Malaysia. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, it's a disca- it is odd, <laughs> odd board. You know. and, and, and it's extraordinary that Malaya has disappeared.
0: Young man, Hi, um, my name is Theophilus. I wanted to pick up on Prof Wang's characterization earlier of Singapore as a migrant state and a migrant nation. And indeed, the circumstances of the birth of this nation were unique, and that was a distinctive identity, both then and now. And yet, in the last five to ten years in Singaporean public discourse, we have seen currents that tend towards populist nationalism, we have seen currents that tend towards xenophobia. I wanted to ask the the three speakers on stage, um, what do you think are the roots of these currents? Do you think they have their roots in forces in local politics or do you think they have their roots further afield from Singapore?
2: Well, uh, it, this, is, uh, this is definitely something in progress. Things are changing around us in ways that I certainly did not anticipate. And uh, there are other possibilities which I think we can't quite how, know how to anticipate. For example, the whole regional structure, political structure, the question of one superpower controlling a single world order has been now questioned. It was taken for granted for at least a couple of decades after the fall of the Soviet Union that the Americans would be the superpower to police the world and keep everybody in order to make sure that we all live happily together and so on. Well, it hasn't worked out that way. I mean, uh, things have gone very wrong even in the eyes of the American leaders themselves. They have not been able to prevent a lot of things from happening that they didn't want to happen, and they now recognize that they can't do it. And I think that is a reality. And I'm, America First is not just nationalism. It's a kind of realism that they can't do it by themselves. They've got to find different ways of doing it. And the different ways may include a different kind of soft imperialism, as it were, to bring out different sets of uh, uh, organizations to reorganize the world in such a way that, say, Americans, Chinese, Russians, Indians, Japanese can have different pots of control over the different parts of the world. For all I know, I mean, I can't actually see it uh, myself. But so the question of what is migration today as compared to when our ancestors earlier on migrated, already it has changed. And the kind of numbers we involved, with the kind of refugees going to Europe, the kind of migrations that are, people talk about 100 million migrants in one form or the other are Either on the move or recently on the move or about to about to move right now, and that's a different ball game altogether. I mean, we're not the kind of migrant state I'm talking about belongs to the the before as well, not not the beyond. The beyond now, with easy communications, with easy ways of getting around, this the speed at which people move, the numbers involved, and the lack of control. I mean. Poor Mr. Trump trying to build a wall, I mean, you know. uh, He's having great trouble within his own country. But the fact is that people are moving, no matter what he wants, what he likes to do, people are moving. And these are factors now which I I don't know how to build into the equations, as it were, for the future. Are Are we really going to be able to hold our borders the way we used to hold in the past? I'm not sure, because when we mo- when our ancestors moved, there were no borders to speak of. I mean, I remember the, uh, even, even when I was a young boy, there were no, no such things as borders. People just moved around. They, they, they talk about the overseas Chinese being transnational in the days before they were nation states. Of course they were transnational. They didn't even understand what a nation was. And they moved around. And basically, all you had to do was a little pass and to say that you got a job, uh, 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 some labor agent, is, uh, uh, recruited you to, a few hundred of them arrive and they just sorted out that you're all healthy and clean and so on and that was, that was about it. And uh, nobody cared two hoods about what your nationality was or, uh, and where you really came from because everybody just uh, operated in that really relatively free world of, of borderless between, curiously enough, between different empires. As long as the empires were, their own interests were being protected, they couldn't care less. Where people came from, providing cheap labor, ability to, healthy enough to work for a while, and make money for the rich people who were exploiting the lands anyway, that was enough. So that was not that long ago. But today when you talk about migrants, I don't think we're going to have migrant states of that kind anymore. So when we talk about new people coming in here, well, it's a different ball game. I'm not sure what are the common factors involving which level of workers that are coming into Singapore. I mean, I'm astonished when I, someone explained to me how many levels of work permits or kinds of permissions that you are allowed to get. I, I am completely bewildered by all this thought. This is not uh, the kind of world that I understood before.
1: <laughs> well, Foucault, I think, says state to be a state has to be able to do two things. One, control your borders, and two, control your population. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's why we have so many grades of <laughs> migrant labor. But um, there are some questions from the other room. Um, uh, I'll just ask each of you in turn. This one says, do Ask, do you see a day where companies such as Facebook, Apple, or even Huawei gain a certain degree of statehood? Not as far as Singapore government is
0: concerned, but... but. <laughs> I think they're going to be terribly influential, yeah. and they're going to control um, the economies and flow of information, and with that, um, all, all other things related to that. But um, whether they would uh, be able to establish political control mm-hmm. I, I think that would require some stretch of imagination. And so <laughs> I, I, I'm not convinced that that would happen. But as a major player, as a significant player in the world system, I think they're going to be featuring. Uh,
1: there's some countries that are establishing embassies or other diplomats um, to, you know, to to relate to tech companies, um, you know, digital ambassadors. So. Um, Oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> another question, in <laughs> yeah. um, this question is inevitable after you spoke about empires, um, how would the return of a Chinese empire look like? <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess I asked for that. <laughs> well, you know, that's another, another very interesting word. The Chinese didn't have a word called empire. They used the word which doesn't actually translate as empire. Uh, And they they also had no sense of borders. That's another side. If if you look at every dynasty of China, if you look at the maps of all the dynasties of China, not the same borders. The borders were always changing. Of course, there was a a core group. But even then, there were times when China was occupied by other people who were non-Chinese, conquered the whole of China. The idea of a Chinese empire, which the Chinese talk about as if it had been continuous from the days of Confucius down to the present day, is based on the idea which is not the word empire that we use. We we use the word empire really from the Roman Empire. The imperium is the word that the the English use empire, to translate. Imperium is a Roman Empire. And if you take the Roman Empire as the model, then the Chinese empire is not like the Roman Empire at all. It's, it's actually a kind of civilizational state, some people will call it. it. It expands its territory as more and more people become Chinese, assimilated into Chinese or persuaded to become Chinese or attracted by Chinese values and civilization. And as they grew and as the people on the borders of China accepted more and more ideas from the Chinese, they became part of China. and the, Was that an empire? It's very hard to say. For example, right now, if you look at the PRC, they have something like 55 minority groups, of which about four of them are very distinctly, very different, occupying large territories like the Tibetans, the Uyghurs, and the Mongols. These are the three largest. And to some extent, the Hui, the Muslims. But even the Manchus, which had a vast territory, have become totally Sinicized. They are Chinese now. They are indistinguishable. But of the other so-called minorities, they are culturally distinct. You can see them wearing different clothes, having different dances and shows and so on. But they really have no national identity and they are not unwilling to call themselves Chinese, unlike the Tibetans and Uyghurs. They're not unwilling to call themselves Chinese, but in a vague sort of sense, almost cultural sense. But they're not a nationality that the Han Chinese is recognized as probably basis for the Han nationality. But the others, the five, 55 other minorities, have very distinct uh, characteristics, characteristics of their own. And for example, one of the problems about defining and calling China an empire is the fact that when our standard empires break down, even when the Roman Empire came to an end, the Romans all went home to Rome. So left behind a bit of France, a bit of Britain, a bit of Spain, elsewhere, they all went back to Rome. And the last 100 years, all the empires went home to their own nation states, but not China. The Manchu Empire, which was definitely a Manchu Empire, not a Chinese Empire. The Manchus had conquered the Chinese. It was a Manchu Empire that lasted for 250 years. But when it came to an end, they didn't go home, they're just part of China. So that, that makes us confuse us about it. What kind of empire is that when people have got nowhere to go back home to? You know, they, they, they not a national empire to begin with. So it doesn't quite match all the others. That that creates a, that creates a, a big problem for even today. The Chinese, for example, have tremendous difficulty thinking of themselves as a nation because, as a member of the United Nations, we are United Nations. Everyone is a nation-state, but a Chinese as a Today, the People's Republic of China finds it extremely difficult to call itself a nation-state. It is not a nation-state. If anything, it's a multinational state. Maybe India is the same. It's a very multi, almost multinational state. I like the way a, 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 a great Indian diplomat, when asked a question about what what do we do with the Indian minorities, and he said he gave a very wise answer. He said in India. We are all minorities. Everybody is a minority, one kind or the other. And uh, when you thought about it, he has something there. This is not true of China. China has a distinct Han majority. But of course, if you go down to actually go and visit China, you find all these people who say, we are Hawkins, we're not like those Cantonese, and (laughs) whatever it is. So you have local differences which are quite distinct, and people are very proud of their differences. But it doesn't prevent them from thinking of a larger entity called China. But is that a nation? Does it make really call itself a, a nation, cor- a correct name for itself? I think they really have trouble. You know that for the, ever since 1911, after they got rid of the Manchus, they created a republic called Republic of China. They dis- discovered that it consists of so many different peoples. They tried to invent a new nationality called the but they haven't been able to find out who is Zhonghua (laughs) Min to this day. And I think this is not not at all funny because the Chinese have tremendous difficulty within themselves to convince themselves that they're just another nation state like Singapore or Denmark or Belgium. It's not the same at all. In fact, they're utterly different. So that is one problem with the word nation. Who is a nation? Which is really the standard model of a nation state? I don't know. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Just as the Manchus Empire disappeared, but Manchus remained part of China, the British Empire disappeared, but English became an Indian language, and uh, curry became an English dish, so <laughs> identities are very fungible. Um, may I turn the, um, ask somebody in the audience whether they would like to ask a question? I got a few more questions from the other room. Somebody dying to get up and ask a commanding question? If not, um, this is um, perhaps also for you. Um, Could you discuss the different strategies employed by nation-states in Asia to either repudiate or stress the continuity with their imperial past? This can only refer to Japan. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, <yeah. laughs> no, I, don't, I don't know how to answer, <laughs> answer that question. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you want to take a, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, but turn it around, I mean, um, repudiate. Some, one of you, I think you mentioned it, or both of you alluded to it, how um, There were many separations, not only from Malaysia.
2: Don't repudiate so much as separate. Separate, uh, yeah. yeah. Repudiate is too strong. Mm. Yeah, please. Uh, Fritz Reichenbach, uh, just a question about uh, the idea of a a nation state and its continuation. Uh, With capitalism, you depend on law and trust and contracts lasting for many years. It's been very successful, really, from the East India Company. If that, it, it seems like, that's locking us into a nation state structure just because that has been such a successful strategy with regards to wealth creation across the world. Just wanted your your thoughts on that. Uh, let, let me try and go further with this nation state in one particular direction. And that is that I did say that some, nat- some states quite readily became nation states because they were already homogenous Uh, They were very nativist. They believed in ethnic uh, community, unities, and uh, the value system was one. Probably shared language, shared religion, shared history was clearly defined. That's probably the easier part, they recognized that. But actually the shades, the gradations of nation states are so considerable, so varied, that you have the other extreme, like Singapore is, the other extreme, when you actually have to start from scratch. To, to try and make everybody a Singaporean in, in, from, from 1965 onwards. Now that's a pretty extreme example. When you look at it that way, then you find that among the nation states, some are very exclusive, very closed, and totally unwelcome people, foreigners are totally unwelcome, all the way to those which are very open, but at the same time, basing themselves on a completely different idea, the idea, a very modern idea, of a civic state, as opposed to say an ethnic state. Ethnic deriving from blood, your descent line, your kinship systems, and so on. But a civic state is something you can join. It's like a club. You join a club, you become, you you observe the rules. These are the laws, these are rules, these are regulations. As long as you accept these rules and regulations, you can be one of us. So the civic state is almost like a club that you can actually join, as long as you observe the rules, you accept the the rules. Now that's pretty open, it's inclusive, it's open, it welcomes people who they feel they can contribute. These are the rules, you accept them, and you're good enough for me, I'll accept you. And and you can form a, a nation state out of that, it is possible. In fact, all these definitions require a very strong commitment to law. Law defining certain things very sharply, and you accept the law, and you regard the law as being sacred in one way or the other, and you're prepared to always to go with the law, then you are one of us. Now that is a, also a nation, but the the difference between one, ki- one extreme and the other is The gap is the Gulf is very different. And how these different kinds of nations relate to one another is actually one of the fascinating stories of the 20th century and we're still living in it. And I, I, I sometimes read some of the reports about the United Nations and I find it absolutely fascinating. Those 180 countries probably have 180 varieties of nationhood and I think they require a lot of understanding, to e- how to understand each of them. To, th- to assume that they're all more or less the same, and they would behave the same, and expect them to behave the same, is a re- complete misunderstanding of how they succeed, to how they survive. But,
0: but, but that's precisely the point, right? Because the current world order is built on um, the fact that you know, there are nation states which enjoy sovereignty, so irrespective of your size, you, each, you are a player in the system.
2: An equal. An equal player.
0: So Singapore has the same rights as America or China. And unless that world order changes fundamentally, then the idea of a sovereign nation state will persist. And no matter how you emerge, whether it's through a true bifurcation of territory or through independence from former empires, you have to acquire that status. So I think in 1965, if Singapore had exited Malaysia, Malaysia, it had no choice but to be a nation state, right? Because that was the way the world was organized. So it had no other option. So I think uh, the answer to your question is that I think this is the way it is because of the world order and that's how businesses between um, states, um, foreign policy are transacted. And there was no, there's no other way in which you can play this. Uh, I, I just come back from Yale and I had taken back with me the book by Henry Kissinger, The World Order. And I have just read for the first three pages and put it aside to prepare for this lecture. But that's an interesting book to read because he talks about how the world order has evolved historically mm-hmm. and got got to this state. And that, I think the way he sees it is that it's gonna stay, um, but then there will be all these tensions because um, the nature of states, nation states in the Middle East, in Asia, Latin America and elsewhere, they all, as you say, are functioning slightly differently. But there is no alternative at this point in time because of the way th- the world order exists. But one should underestimate
1: the force and power of lived experience. Yeah. I mean, Singapore's case, um, that was the case. We lived in the same housing estates, We went, men at any rate went through a certain experience in common in the military. I began to realise this, how, I mean, frankly, I'm surprised, the, my contemporaries are here in the audience, I think they also share my, my, my feeling. I'm surprised looking back how rapidly we acquired the sense of being a Singaporean
2: society. It is surprising, yeah. but the fact is that, that uniqueness of the background, the fact that that separation of 1965 was a shock, Yeah. And a, Complete rethink, as it were, that everybody yeah. had to go through, and to have everything mm. almost fundamentally defined from, from mm. bottom up, as mm. it were, mm. to define. The effort was made. The fact that you wondered whether you could survive or not, that what would you have to do to survive, and all those things was what did the whole generation. Mm. I mean. I missed all that because I wasn't in Singapore, but I was somewhere else. But I can imagine some of it among my friends mm. who should tell me how hard it was to think of themselves mm. in this new state, and then what? They, because they never expected to be, uh, to be part of an independent state. But that very special experience, which is a unique, to go back to the word unique again, that uniqueness, you can't reproduce it anywhere else. It's a very special way of re- responding, and the swift, the quickness, the speed at which they responded, was because the pressure was probably greater. To change, to adapt, to rediscover yourself was so great that they 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 did it. I mean, yeah. I don't think it happens normally in the in other countries. It doesn't work like that. So
0: so this probably goes back to the question that was asked a while ago, which we didn't really fully answer, and that is the fact that you know. Um, out of out of uh, a former colony, a state in Malaysia, emerged a new nation state. And very quickly, an identity had to be built, right? You had to build rootedness, you had to give people a sense of home. And when, in a way, Singapore succeeded in doing that, it created that sense that, well, since this is home, then I'm entitled, I'm entitled to certain rights and certain uh, privileges by being a citizen of Singapore. And when those uh, privileges and rights a challenge because of competition, then it generates a certain sense of xenophobia, right? A certain sense that why are these foreigners coming to take what is rightfully mine? So I think that that partially answers your question. Um, But the point is, and this is a question which I'm gonna pose to the two speakers here. You could do that when you you have a stable population that continues to grow and continues to populate the state. But in current situation and projecting to the future, when the Singaporean core was born, raised here, starts to shrink in relation to the overall population, would that sort of identity that was built very quickly over 50 years persist, or will it be diluted? And then we go back to the old formula where Singapore just had to remain an open global city. You had a small group of people who call themselves citizens, some are new citizens, but one-third or more of your population could be transient workers moving in and out. So how does that impact Singapore as a nation state? Uh,
2: That's beyond. (laughs) 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 I know know that uh, people who pretend to be historians also like to look at the future (laughs) and and, and can't can't, uh, resist thinking they know. But, in fact, uh, my experience, having tried to predict the future many, many times, and were, was always wrong, uh, I now hesitate to, to do that. I honestly do not know, because the, the, the fact is that the kind of borders we're talking about are really based on the principles of the Treaty of Westphalia. Mm. The Westphalian idea of sovereignty is now 300 years plus, and it's lasted a long time. But I cannot believe that it will be asked forever. I mean, the, the, as, a, as a principle, I, because so much that is changing technologically, the global world is shrinking, population distribution is changing rapidly, all kinds of things are happening. Economic uh, moves from one part of the world to another part of the world, all these are happening, the world order itself is being questioned today. Whether we know what to replace it with, I, I, I have no idea at this stage, but the fact is that people are questioning They don't know what to, what is going to happen next, but they're questioning whether this world order can work as it is. And if it is to change, change in what direction, who to change it, how to define it, and who will have the biggest say in doing so. All these things are, I think, in all our minds. And in that context, the question of who is, whatever he calls himself, is really an open question. I'm, I'm not sure that anybody would be necessarily insist on being one thing. The multiple identities that uh, every one of us have a bit of could also happen to nationality. I mean, at the moment, we still talk about one nation, but they, of course, we already have people who have dual nationalities, people who have different, many passports, and so on. So it goes to show that this is a much more fluid thing than we imagine. Don't, don't think that these territories and these passports and all these are forever and ever. I personally don't believe that they can be forever and ever the way that technology is changing us uh, all over. You wanted to ask a question? Mm-hmm.
3: Thank you, journalist uh, Zainal here. i like to ask a question about um, History, numbers, minority, majority situation, and democracy. And among the three, which will be a strong determinant for the way forward. Uh, Prof. Uh, Wong Wu mentioned just now that Singapore is quite unique in the sense that it's all basically immigrants, immigration. I don't know how the Malays will feel with that kind of statement. Uh, because when we celebrate our bicentennial, uh, in fact, I'm co editing a book. Bicentennial from the Malay perspective. So we are happy that the government PMO has chosen the approach that is not just Raffles, but beyond Raffles, Not although we celebrate Bicentennial, but we're going to 700 years. I recall a letter in the Straits Times saying, when you talk about the history, will it be the Malays or will we go beyond the Malays, which means basically Indian Hindu civilization, Vijaya, Buddhist, and Pranamban that came from this area, Sriwijaya and the others. So there's a point of history. Numbers, I don't know why we're here to discuss only Singapore, but whether we could also cite Malaysia as an example. Last election, the coming up of the importance of the non-Malay votes and the concerns the Malays have, how will it determine what kind of Malaysia it will be going forward? So is it just history? Is it just a question of numbers when it comes to democracy and the system that we have, or whether it will be something else that will determine what is nationhood looking ahead? Thank you.
2: I I just have one one word to add about the word history. I know we've had too many difficult words and are all very elusive and, and slippery, but history is in one sense very simple. There's history meaning the past, whatever happened. We don't know it, we try to know it, we're trying to to find out what actually happened. That's one history. But all the other histories are actually man-made by somebody. Maybe a historian, maybe a government, maybe a ruler, a dictator. The victors certainly wrote the histories, the people who lost, no chance to write the history at all. So these these are the other histories. The the histories that we often read, the books that we read, are actually written by people, usually with an agenda of one one, one, one kind or another. The professional historian who believes that he should try and find out what really happened is a very rare group of people and most of, most of their books nobody reads because they're, <laughs> they're, trying, they're trying so hard to prove one thing or the other. You can't follow them because it's very difficult because the evidence is never that clear cut and there are lots of controversies among professional historians. But the historian who writes a popular book with a very clear angle that fits your picture of, of the world, you can absorb that very quickly. And from that point of view, Governments find it irresistible to rewrite history. And I'm saying this of all governments, not only the Singapore government, (laughs) all governments. They cannot resist the right. In fact, I honestly do not know of any national history that did not have an agenda, a government agenda behind the national history. Directly or indirectly, subtly and more crudely, but they do it one way or the other, they want a particular story to be told for a particular reason at a particular time. At a different time, they were probably the same people might tell it differently, for all I know. But certainly, at different periods of time, people rewrite their own history. All peoples, countries rewrite their history. Even as we are to, living today, we are re- rewriting a lot of the history that we learned as a, a schoolboys, because the perspective has changed, our interests have changed, we are looking at different frameworks and the whole world order, as it were, as it shifts, influences the way we look at history. So that part of history is elusive, difficult to deal with, but inevitable. So,
0: so if I could just add to that, I think uh, what Prof. Wang has just mentioned is something very interesting because we always assume that history with a big H or a small H is always finite, right, and final. Actually, that's not true. Actually, what we should be more interested in is history writing. History writing as an enterprise, as an exercise, and that's where it's important. So you mentioned the, the the example of the bicentennial, and that's an exercise in history writing or understanding history. Because do you start? Do you start at 1819, or do you start further back? What do you include? What do you exclude? And I think that's where the space has to be created, not just for the state to have a say in the history of a country or of a people, but to have a variety of voices, a plurality of voices, so that you can have an enriched understanding of the very complex process of history writing. And that's something that we hope will happen. And I've always argued that in celebrating the bicentennial, it should not just be a national effort that should be forgotten and dusted after 2019 passes on, but it should spark, I guess, renewed interest and curiosity in the history of our past, the history of the various groups of came before even the Europeans arrived and made Singapore their home and developed Singapore as a port city. So that's exactly the kinds of things that need to happen. On numbers, I really don't know what to say because in the end, it's about if, if the world is organised on states that are based on democracy and elected governments, the numbers do matter. And how they play the numbers, of course, it, it depends on what, what happens, and we looked at Malaysia as an interesting example last May, and to see what can happen.
1: We have time for one last question. All right. uh, one last question. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um,
2: just one question, actually. Um, I'm Hazim. I think given that our conception of being a Singaporean identity has evolved quite rapidly over the past sixty-five um, past uh, years, in the age of technology and social media with greater information flow, would you think that our conception of a Singaporean identity will grow even more rapidly because looking at like Facebook conversations, the rallying point against Malaysia, for example, the Malaysian vessels, or like having an Oxford student debating to Tun Mahathir and everyone rallying against him. With those conversations... Against whom, the
1: Oxford student or Tun Mahathir?
2: (laughs) Well, (laughs) depends on the way you look at it. But see, like these platform conversations, would this be... Um, will this allow for us to conceive of a Singaporean identity even more rapidly, faster than previous years? Okay. I have somebody who
1: seems very anxious to ask a question, so <laughs> can you just, just, and then we'll do one. Uh.
4: Hi, my name is Denise. Okay, I have a question to ask. Um, moving forward, can you can you foresee the youth of today preserving historical cultures and traditions in the era of exponential change, where cross cultures feels to form a new identity in a world which is so connected.
1: Would you like to take both?
0: (laughs) Okay, I I think the the two are in a way connected, right? Because, um, and, and this is linked to the previous question of history writing and understanding history. Because, I mean, Singapore is only, as a nation state, is only 54 years old. And um, Provang was right to have alluded to the fact that to build that nation, to build that identity, the state played a very prominent role in creating that narrative. Because you had to create a narrative to get the people to believe that this is the trajectory, this is where we've come from, this is where we'll go, and also give hope that the trajectory will always be a positive one. But I think history is going to be more complex moving forward. Precisely for the reason that we talked about, there is going to be more effort and more involvement of many people in writing their histories, their part in the national history of Singapore. There's gonna be social media that's gonna open up the space and it's gonna be giving possibilities for young people like Hazim to engage in historical conversations. In the past, if you didn't attend a history class, if you didn't attend a talk like this, you're not gonna engage. But now, on social media, you could engage. And I think that really opens up the field and that makes it all the more important for historians, serious historians, to really be listening to many voices and to try to incorporate as much of these voices as possible in your own historical interpretation. And then your point about cross-cultural, because it's no longer the history of one people, one state within clear boundaries. It's gonna be so mixed now. If I were to write the history of Singapore 50 years down the road, it's gonna be a very different sort of history from the kinds of history that we have been used to seeing that was written in the 1970s, in the 1960s. So that's gonna evolve and it's gonna change. But that's what makes history exciting and alive. And it goes beyond, as I was suggesting in my title, that it doesn't end at a certain point, and therefore all the histories have been written, there's nothing more to say. So that's where I think having young people like yourselves engage in this enterprise becomes very important, and then to create that space for this plurality of views uh, will be just as important. I'm afraid I have to, do you want yeah, to say something?
2: What a very brief one, simply to say that I actually want to go back to the word state that uh, Professor Tan mm. I- insisted was a very crucial part of our human uh, stu- structure of society and so on, and I think what. History shows, all the history that you show, that, that we can read, and it doesn't matter who writes it, in the end, they do show that some states succeed and some states don't. And the failed states, when they're badly governed, incompetent leaders, tyrannical leaders, whatever it is, whereas those states that are well-governed by well-trained, professional people, committed to providing good governance and so on, succeed and those others fail. That is actually taught by history. History t- does tell us which are the ones that did succeeded and which are the ones that didn't. And to that extent, a measure of a state as a successful state, depending on what we call good governance, depending on committed people who are prepared to work very hard to ensure that the state functions well, makes progress, enables most of its people to be happy and content, very difficult ideals. But those people who are capable of achieving some part of that, or reaching towards that, deserve to be recognized as a successful state. And I think nations can be a successful state if you have people capable of doing that.
1: I'm afraid I have to bring this to an end. Really?
3: <laughs> okay. okay. What I have to say is about identity and national identity. Because one of the things that all of the Singaporeans have in our ICs are race.
0: So we're all attached to a particular race, and now they're expanding it to double races if you're a child of a mixed marriage. And then I wonder, because I know children who are the results of a mixed parents and mixed parents, and are you going to go doubled? Or shall we just identify them all as Singaporeans, the national identity, the Singaporean identity?
1: Uh, I, this question gets asked almost every IPS conference. So, <laughs> and my solution is very simple. You know, now you have double barrel races. Then, as you say, mix products of mixed mixed marriages marry another product for mixed marriage. So you have quadruple. You know, Malay China, and Then solve the problem. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I have to bring this to an end. I'm very glad that we did this. Um, um, I should tell you a little about why this, how this came about. Tayong was contractually obliged to give six lectures. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, every previous SR Nathan fellow has refused to abide by that contractual obligation, including someone who's sitting in front of me.
4: <laughs>
1: so this time around, he gave, agreed to give five lectures, and then agreed to have well, this dialogue comic relief. Comic relief. <laughs> no, but I think um, um, you now have evidence of what historical thinking really means uh, in those, these two distinguished historians, and I'm very happy that we did this. And um, uh, um, Professor Wang Wu will, I hope, be around with us for much longer, and, and he has been a very consistent uh, participant in all our activities. And uh, we will have him uh, appear more often <laughs> <laughs> at our functions. So please join me in thanking both people. <laughs>